Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inner Call podcast. My name is Flair. I'm so happy that you're here. If you're tuning in for the first time, this is the place for you to identify your inner call, to witness other people stepping into their power and connecting to their inner call, to live collectively our most expansive lives. I truly believe everyone has an intuition and that sometimes for you to trust your intuition, you need to see other people trusting theirs. So that's why I bring on incredible guests, incredible with a capital I, let me say, to help you identify how it's worked for them, right? Today's guest is somebody that I've watched from afar. I have a couple of mutual friends in common, but I've adored her as I've been watching her from afar. And so I was so excited to introduce you guys to her because she's really up there for me in the women that have a strong voice, have it right in terms of connection to self and empowerment of others. And she's just a genuinely, fantastically warm-hearted, wonderfully intellectually stimulating human. Without much further ado, her name is Elise Lunen, and she is a writer and an editor and the host of the podcast, Pulling the Thread. She also has just put on the market a New York Times bestseller, instant bestseller called On Our Best Behavior, and it chronicles the seven deadly sins, which we talk about a lot in today's podcast, and how it's been used to suppress the feminine. Now, the seven deadly sins you may be aware of, they're things like envy and greed and anger, on and on and on. You know, the ones that we don't like to feel. And the reason that I really wanted Elise on here is in a two-part place, really. It's one, I think the feminine, and I'm not talking masculine, feminine from the perspective of biology, but feminine identifying principles in our lives are inherently intuitive. And it's not the world that we inhabit. You know, the world is patriarchal and we go into that today at length and it's set up with structure and constraints and it is logic and it's rationale and the intuitive is free-flowing and feminine and has a mystical power to it. So when we look at things like the seven sins and how it's been used to keep women small and keep that feminine voice quiet, then we can't help but realize that within that constraint, intuition is impossible to find. The feminine has to be celebrated for the intuition to arise. There is no other way. And so I think Elise is doing incredible work, incredible work in, in terms of having us say these seven deadly sins, these emotions that we don't want to feel, both because they give us an icky feeling and because society has deemed them bad. These seven things we don't want to be, these seven things that we don't want to inhabit, if we shy away from them, if we live in the constriction and the confinement of that, we also can't be the deeply intuitive beings that we are meant to be. Emotion is a huge calling card of the intuition. We have to inhabit all emotion, understand how it exists in the body, how it presents itself, in order to also get to the intuitive emotion. And I tell my students this all the time. Of course, not every emotion is intuitive by nature. Of course, you are a feeling person. There is trauma in there. There is grief in there. Things that arise from the external world that are playing out in your emotions. Of course, of course, of course. But if one of the telltale signs of the intuition, one of the calling cards of the intuition also comes through emotion, then we have to understand the entire container to be able to identify how the intuition speaks differently 
than the other emotions. And also to get some of the other shit out of the way. You can't be intuitive in a container that is all muddled up, all bundled up with old trauma, old stuff, you know? And and I talk about this in, in mentorship and I talk about this on retreat. And it's one of the key things that we do on retreat is we get some of that stuff out of there. So I think this work that Elise is doing is incredible. Just a couple other things I want to tell you about Elise before we dive in. She is the host of that podcast, Pulling the Thread, which is incredible. She brings on a lot of very cool people. And she previously worked as the chief content officer of Goop, like the Goop. She worked on that Goop Lab Netflix show, which was absolutely fascinating. And she's interviewed hundreds of thought leaders, some of my favorite people. So definitely go check out her podcast, all very inspirational people. And she herself has an incredible voice. So because today's content was so chock full with amazing, 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 amazing stuff, I have decided to divide it into part one and part two. Obviously, today is part one. It would be quite silly if we started with part two, but today's part one, and then next week you will get part two. Part two is quite vulnerable. We really dive deep into these emotions we don't want to feel and how it's applied to our own lives. So definitely come back for part two. But part one today is a fantastic conversation around the history of patriarchy, how it's evolved, how we understand it, how these seven sins have played a part in that construction and the keeping smallness of the feminine. I invite you to grab a cup of tea, a coffee, or just enjoy the drive that you're on or the cleaning that you're doing or the art project or whatever it is that you're doing while listening to this podcast. Enjoy. It's such a thought-provoking conversation. I myself have gone back to the conversation over and over and over again just to like really relish in the understanding that what once was in terms of how we lived and what we prioritized and where our values are, one, was largely misunderstood, and two, doesn't have to be moving forward. So enjoy it, and I will see you next week for part two. Don't forget. Hey, Elise. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You can hear me okay, right? Yeah, you sound good. You're all set up. You got a great mic. It's like you've been doing this. Very professional, Fleur. I don't know if you know this about me, but I am just very professional. Me too. Well, at least we're pretending. I have the computer on top of some cookbooks, one called Indian Vegetarian, but you can't see that part. You can't see. I have mine on a stack of Llewellyn Von Lee, Sufi. Nice. Thanks for rescheduling. I'm now without the COVID, so I oh, really good. appreciate I'm sorry that happened. It's okay. It's wild, right? It's like we all think it's gone. And then it hits you again and you're like, oh, no, this is just here to stay, I think. It's who we are now. Yeah. No. It's part of our reality. How is the book launch going? It has been great. It's really fun to talk about this book, I will say. So, yeah, I've been enjoying it. It's going to do great. It's It's a fascinating topic. Yeah. And as I was preparing for our interview today and as I was sitting with it, I thought it's actually really perfect because... The podcast is called The Inner Call. It's all about intuition, which is inherently feminine in nature, or we could call it matriarchal. We could call it the softness versus like the intense patriarchal system. And I want to actually just start there because in writing this book, 
And in researching it, it seems like you've also looked at the history of the patriarchal system. And I'd really just like to start there. What does that look like? It's interesting and and thinking about intuition and the feminine and sort of like how the whole thing came together for me was quite mystical in a way that I wouldn't well, knowing myself, I would have predicted this, but I also was surprised and and delighted by all the synchronicities and strangeness in the story of both the creation of patriarchy, but also how the sins emerged in culture and who they were assigned to and what that means. Probably like most people, I had always assumed in some ways that patriarchy was inevitable that it's kind of the way it had always been. And as I started working on this book, sort of starting with the sins, then the revelation of sort of, there's a, there's an early chapter. The first chapter is about the history of patriarchy. And I tried to do it briefly and lightly. It's obviously incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. But as I started to research, I wanted to understand multiple things. Where the where the patriarchy came from, when it became enmeshed or combined with morality and ideas of goodness, Mm. and how those ideas specifically came to haunt women, because I make the argument that women are conditioned for goodness and men are conditioned for power in this patriarchy. And the, the our early prehistory, as I'm sure many listeners know, is so fascinating, complex, multilayered, variable, creative. And We didn't switch sort of from like, it was all a matriarchy and now it's a patriarchy. That's not what happened. In fact, there aren't really matriarchies in the sense of how we think about patriarchy, where there are these dominance-based oppressive regimes that just happen to be led by women. What we see instead in our early prehistory is more partnership, affiliative style community Mm. where there was... It's possible. We don't know. There are a lot of sort of goddess sculptures in existence. Clearly, there was a deep reverence for the goddess and equated with women. They, they don't know what these, these objects are. They could be birthing talismans. They could be dolls. They could be gods, goddesses. But the belief is that our earliest ancestors had a very profound relationship with the planet and with creative functions and inherently women. And we all, and it makes so much sense. We did life together. We were surviving. Yeah. We were hopefully thriving, but there was a, just a completely different structure than what we have today. And what's kind of amazing about the history too, which is still emerging and our understanding will continue to evolve but the way that culturally – I write about sort of this idea uh, that Ashley Montague talks about of first nature and second nature. First nature being who we really are, essentially. Second nature being the stories we tell about who we are. Culture and how culture informs nature is fascinating and we'll never, ever understand the implications of that because even let's think about this idea of women – and the qualities of the feminine, we can talk about feminine and masculine, but this idea that women are in the caves, they are taking care of babies, this is naturally who we are, right? And I think most of us grew up with this predominant idea, men hunting, uh, women 
gathering. Yeah, right. Hunters, gatherers. Yes. And you get the berries, now, you get the wild buffalo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now there's enough evidence to suggest, well, that's not actually like unequivocally true at all. You know, they when they've taken newer evidence and looked at uh, graves in the Amazon, 26 graves, hunters, warriors buried with tools of the trade. And when they went back and looked at these remains, they realized that 10 were women. Mm. They were female Vikings, et cetera. So this idea that we is that we've always been far more fluid. There's no reason. I'm sure women were participant in in hunts, and men were participant in foraging and gathering, planting, et cetera. So a lot of that story that we've been sold about who we are and who who how we should behave is a story. It's a myth that we continue to sort of push on each other. Yeah. And with the patriarchy itself, it emerged at different points in time around the globe. But essentially what they what they in the region of the world that's sort of the focus of my book, the emergence of Judeo-Christianity and morality. And I should say, there's an anthropologist, Maria Gambutas, who was at UCLA, Hungarian, driven out of Hungary as a child. And she has written a lot about these goddess figurines, and a lot of her work was sort of taken up by feminist thinkers and stretched, uh, mm-hmm. just to be honest, like a lot of those sort of, there was a matriarchy, you know, a lot of that sort of was also a little bit of myth, myth yeah. building. But she had a theory that what happened is that she calls them Kurgans because of the way that they're the mounds of their burial sites came out of the Russian steppes and that it was a preponderance of men, warring, violent men, who descended onto sort of the area, the the broad area where Judeo-Christianity emerged and enslaved women and children, killed and co-opted culture, and that this became sort of the beginning of patriarchy. And what's fascinating is this is her theory. Then she becomes widely disparaged by male mm. academics, in part because of sort of the myth mil- myth making that was happening around matriarchy. And she was just destroyed by other academics. She had passed at this point. And then what's amazing, of course, is that now she's been revenerated because DNA has proven her theory, more or less, Mm. that -hmm. there was a takeover, that the DNA of the existing population was taken over by this Kurgan DNA, that this event happened, which is stunning. And so anyway, so patriarchy, we see it first sort of in Hammurabi's code in terms of things that were a lot, none of this was written down until like Hammurabi's code is the first legal Mm. artifact that we have. We don't have a lot to look at, but that's sort of where we see patriarchy without a religious attachment. That's where we sort of see this early women as property, women as different classes of respectability, like this oppressive idea. And then with Judeo-Christianity, this, these cultures, these, these rules become divine. Right. And a lot of it is just complete interpretation 
and then sort of like assigning a lot of it as a recasting of existing culture through a very different lens. And then the sins, I didn't grow up in a religious household. So I didn't, I, I kind of vaguely knew them as parts of a movie, et cetera. And when I sort of came up with the superstructure of the book, I looked up the sins and had this like, oh my God, this is, uh, this is it for women. Sloth, envy, pride, gluttony, greed, lust, anger. These are all things that women police themselves around, suppress and deny and are judged for. These are all cultural ideas that we recognize. We don't hold these against men. But the sins weren't in the Bible. That was shocking to me. They came out of the Egyptian desert at the same time that the New Testament was being canonized. And at the hand of this monk named Evagrius Ponticus, originally there were eight. Evagrius is also credited as one of the early fathers of the Enneagram. Fascinating. He called them eight, yeah, demonic thoughts. They weren't, and demonic not meaning our version of hell. Yeah. And the Enneagram is the personality test pretty much in the way that we use it now. It's now personality. Yeah. But and, and it's, but it has very early, myst- it's different from like its early mystical sort of Gurdjieffian, like Sufi. Sufi. It's a very sacred, interesting, mm. fast. That in and of itself is like a fascinating story because it sort of emerged out of different points of the globe. Anyway, past, you know, he wrote it as these demonic thoughts, but more distracting thoughts, thoughts that keep you out of prayer, less like hell, hell. Mm. And then it made it, sort of was passed around this little chapbook for, for fellow monks. And then it was in 590 that Pope Gregory I talked about these sins as the cardinal vices. And in the same homily, he assigned them all to Mary Magdalene. Because in the New Testament, she is referred to a few times as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons, which would, side note, make her like the most sanctified person in the Bible. And some people theorize that he was clearing her chakras. But these sins, the Pope said, these are the same sins, these are the same demons that that Mary Magdalene has. He turned her into the same woman who anoints Jesus's hair, Jesus's feet with her hair, and then turns her into a penitent prostitute. So it's just, it's Bible fanfic. It is, that was the moment. And then she wore that reputation until, until now. like, yeah, 2016. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was wild. Yeah. I think my first experience on this was only a few years ago. Uh, I read the book The Sacred Prostitute mm. by Nancy Cor- Corbett, I want to say. Do, did I you never read, read it? it? It's a bit like a cult mini book that was passed on to me by a girlfriend who was like, welcome to the club. Yeah, It's a Jungian approach. It definitely goes into the history. I don't know how much of it is factual because then she goes into dream interpretations and all of this kind of stuff. But for me, what was most profound about that book is I realized in the first chapter, I was having a really hard time even understanding what a matriarchy would look like. I'm looking mm. at from at, I was very, very aware that I was looking at it from a patriarchal lens. Yeah. And couldn't seem to step out of that. 
Yeah. Even if I wanted to, it was like, I'm just so confined to this perspective. I'm reading the words. I understand what she's saying, but I don't know how to logically apply that to this matriarchal society that I just like can't even understand or wrap my head around. Yeah. So that was super fascinating where I was like, oh, I have really internalized this. That's big. And then two, she also goes in to talk a little bit about the history and she does bring up the the Judeo-Christian kind of container. And in her analysis of it, she pointed out, yeah, you know, Mary's still there, but she's not worshipped. And it was during that time that they like got that witch hunts. And so, of course, like we're taking all worship away from women because it's scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I think it's it's so fascinating here hearing your more detailed history of it. And for me, it, it just comes back to this idea of the power of the feminine and how scared we've been of it. Yeah. Because that's that's really where the attack is. It's like, okay, huh, we've gone and done a whole lot. That's a lot of work for a system to put into place. Everything you've just talked about. We're gonna create deadly sins. We're going to create an entire storyline around the woman being less than good. You know, that's a lot of work to put in. <laughs> and yeah. and it, it, it that makes me wonder as to as you've started this, where if we pull back all these sins and we start like removing those storylines for ourselves, where, where are we trying to get to as a society today? Yeah. And I would say, I don't even know that we want a matriarchal society as much as a balanced society. And I think that the fear of the feminine is, you know, the feminine, you know, we're creative vessels. We're like, obviously intensely identified with our planet. We cycle with the moon. We are vehicles for life and death. And there's this, you know, I think in this toxically masculine world that's completely out of balance, there is this like, but I'm not going to die. You know, this completely uh, intense fear of death, fear of creative chaos, fear of the void. You know, we are not good at this culturally, but men in particular, I think, really struggle. But But this is where I feel like we're also at a really interesting inflection point. And I think we can look at what's happening with the contemporary trans movement as a hint at where we're going, which is like if we sort of say, okay, we had sort of this more matrilineal um, approach, like we uh, this veneration of the goddess, this like intense relationship with the planet. Then we moved into patriarchy. So matriarchy, we can call it, let's say matriarchy to patriarchy. And the next evolutionary phase for us is androgyny. And not the negation of gender. And this is where I feel like we always get confused. But instead, the recognition of this next stage, like we've done the work somewhat of, of sexuality and gender are not always aligned, right? We, we all recognize this. Not all, but many. And then this next phase is, I think, Okay, what is the masculine? The balanced divine masculine is truth, order, structure. The balanced divine feminine is creativity, nurturance, care. These energies and qualities 
are in all of us and should be in all of us equally, regardless of our gender. And so, yes, like this, the ability to generate and create life, it's a very different experience to be in a, but we, we're also pushing against that too, right? To say like, no, actually I'm like very much a woman, even though I was born with, with, you know, male biological parts, et cetera. Um, and so I think, but I think for this next stage to emerge, it won't be sort of like, okay, man, you're done. Bye. It is instead, men, let your feminine come up. Women, I think women are already pretty balanced. Most of us, even if we wouldn't identify it like that, there's so much repression and we can talk about sort of that and how that's killing us. Yeah. But that women can be like, this is what it looks like to be in your masculine and feminine. I'm making shit happen. I'm directing the day. I am running a team at work. And I also love and care for my family and I love to cook or I, you know, whatever it is. Like, I think we're, we're familiar and comfortable. Men need to let their feminine come up. But yeah, the repression. So what I think has happened to women is just because of this quest for goodness and all of this cultural programming around goodness, which inherently is like a beautiful word. But what's happened, and this goes to Mary Magdalene actually, is that these qualities of quote unquote goodness became adjudicated by external authorities and checklists and who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell, men, priests, professors, etc. And in the gospel of Mary, which was deemed heretical and it's a Gnostic gospel, but that's a beautiful gospel where Christ is essentially, she's having a conversation where she is the first apostle. He is, he is resurrected to her, not to the men. Um, and he is telling her about this journey down where he encounters these forces, the reconciling of these forces before he ascends. He is like explaining the path and many pages are missing, etc. It's a very mystical document. But the the prevailing idea, the thesis is God is not out there. It is in you. The goodness is inherent, sacred, and not an exterior achievement. And that's the one, you know, it's all very, again, like have, it's intense that this is, that she is so wrapped up in the way that it has been externalized, this idea of goodness. Yeah, it's fascinating. And so what happens to women, which I think we can all relate to, is that you have these voices in your head that are not your own, but for so long we've internalized them or been like, oh, it must be my family. Well, it's culture. It's culture. It's in us. It lives in our psychology. And so what happens is that when we experience one of these sins and we have been conditioned and programmed to think it's bad, we repress it and suppress it and we don't ever let it come up. And then when it does come up, we feel a tremendous amount of shame. Instead, these, these sins are full of information for us about what we want about who we are, about how we feel, about where our boundaries are, what our needs are. And so you get sort of this this 
this these qualities of being a woman where you're like I don't I, I don't know what this feeling is and so I'm going to project it onto someone else. Um I write about envy as sort of the gateway because it's such an icky feeling, right? Like we we immediately are like, "Oh, gross. Like I don't mm. I have no envy." And I would hear this all the time like from the editorial team or women in my life. Like I was with my friend Kate and we were sitting by her pool and she was I was writing this chapter and um and you know, I was like, well, envy envy shows you what you want. If you let it come up and you acknowledge it and you it shows you what you want. And instead, what we do is we sort of say, like, I don't like her. Like she's yeah. annoying and she thinks she's all that. And um, we can recognize this pattern in our lives and we uphold it with each other. So I was telling her, I was like, who are you envious of? And and she was like, I don't have, I don't, I love women. I am not, I don't have any envy. And her mom was there and she was like, oh yeah, you guys, you outgrow that. That's like a playground thing. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. Well, like, I'll just leave that with you here. And the next day I was at coffee with a friend and I look at my phone and I have, you know, 19 unread text messages and I think someone's sick and I look at my phone and it's my friend and it's, <laughs> she's really funny. She's like, this woman drives I mean, me the crazy. Terms of their envy. Oh my God. I, can't, I find her <laughs> so annoying. And there were all women in LA who have their own brands who are sort of creatively expressed in the world. And yeah. And it was funny because she was like, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, she's like, I understand. I um, I want to do that. I want to do that. And they're pushing, you know, they're pushing on a dream she has for herself. But it was funny just like how intensely insistent she was that she didn't have any envy. Mm-hmm. And then to actually, as soon as she allowed it, it was like, oh, I see how how alive this is in me. What I've also found is as soon as you let it come up and you're like, yeah, I'm really envious. Like I wanted that opportunity. Wow, that's amazing for her. It it's fleeting, actually. Yeah. It's pretty quick and empowering. to deal with it and be like, it's empowering. And then you're like, oh, I'm really happy for her. Like the minute you allow it to transform, not to say I also I want that. It's not saying I don't want that. It's saying, wow, okay. She did that. I could do mm-hmm. that. Exactly. Um, very different, very different experience than like, how did she get that job? Like, she's not that smart. And, you know, all patterns that we recognize and support in each other. And now if we could interrupt it and recognize what it is, yeah, I think it, it starts to change things. From my intuition lens, I think this is so important and so fascinating because when I teach intuition, I do it through a, a four-step method. And one of the steps is that all intuitive knowledge has to be processed up through the body. And so we start looking at mm. like, well, what's getting in the way of that intuition processing up through the body and everything you're talking about, these seven sins, all of that repression, it's, it's getting stuck in there. You know, like nothing can transfer, no intuitive knowledge, no like deep knowledge can actually rise up to the body freely if there is an oppression of all other emotions, if there is um, a repression of anything that's uncomfortable or old patterns or belief systems, or it's like, sure, energetic information is all around you, but it's of no use if it can't fully be translated. And so I think this is like 
Oof, gold. All right, everybody, what did you think about Elise? I could talk to her all day long, and the good news is that this podcast conversation does continue. This wasn't the end. It moves into part two. I actually get a little vulnerable next week, so I'm a little scared about putting that one out, but I think it's really good. You know, when we talk about these emotions, the ones that we don't want to look at, it's also vulnerable to speak about when they show up in our own lives. So I am excited for you to hear part two. I also want to say this is one of the episodes that I want you to share with your girlfriends, with your mom, with your sister, with your people who who identify as female, who are interested in the feminine cause, who want to embody an understanding of maybe why we've been playing small, right? So if you're on that journey with somebody in your life, if you have these conversations with somebody in your life about standing in your power, about overriding perhaps the imposter syndrome, overriding the need to play small. If there is a feminine group of cheerleaders in your life who you cheerlead to, send them this pod for a little bit of inspiration as to all things patriarchy and all things socially constricting so that we may rise up into a new frontier of balanced feminine masculine, of the intuitive being a part of our everyday lives, of a sweetness in the masculine taking on the feminine ideals and ways of being and all of that, right? It is not a fight between who is right and who is wrong or better or bigger or stronger. It's really a harmony, a finding a harmony within ourselves and thereby finding a harmony within society at large. Hopefully, fingers crossed, let's hope for the best. I think we're getting there. And I think today's conversation in part one with Elise, and you'll hear part two where we get even deeper into the nitty gritty of it and even more vulnerable, both her and I. Um, But I think it's really inspiring. It's an inspiring conversation. Thank you also for those of you who left a review. I know it takes time and I know that time is the most valuable thing that we have these days. So thank you. It just makes me smile to know that you're listening, that you are out there. And I want to highlight Jelly Jones' review. She says, thought-provoking. I always look forward to new episodes. Each one has been different and I always learn something new about intuition and how it can affect my own life. Well, that is the goal. Thank you so much for listening, Jelly Joan. And guys, if you want to leave a review, it means the world. It puts a smile on my face and it makes me feel like this podcast is doing something in your life, which is my ultimate goal. Don't forget to tune into part two next week. It'll be waiting for you and I'm excited to continue the conversation with Elise. 